Hello and welcome to another episode of Fountain City Sports Media, a podcast made by Kansas City fans for Kansas City fans. My name is Reese, and I will be taking you through a solo journey this week of recapping the Kansas City Chiefs' victory over the San Diego Chargers, as well as previewing the upcoming game against the Denver Broncos this week. But first, I just want to give a shout out to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for tuning to this podcast on a week-by-week basis. If you want to connect with us more, you can find us on Instagram at FountainCitySM. And if you really, really, really like us and you want to sponsor us for the price of one cup of Starbucks coffee a month, you can check us out at patreon.com backslash FCSM. That membership will get you access to things such as outtakes, bonus episodes, and exclusive mini-series, including things like Season Zero, our first COVID season of the podcast, The Last Dance Michael Jordan documentary review, as well as Speedy and Angry, our ongoing 11-part in-depth deep dive into the Fast and Furious franchise. But for now, we're going to keep things a little tight this week. Uh, you know, it, it was an exciting game. we got some stuff to cover here. But uh, we'll, we'll keep it nice and concise. I think this game can be broken down into a, a few big points. I would say first point would be the Chiefs offense showing up for the first time all season. I'm talking about having a cohesive passing game, probably our best half of offensive football. I, I don't count playing the Bears because they were an absolute dumpster fire when we played them. Uh, and as well as having complimentary football on the back end with the defense. But first things first, let's talk about the passing game. Now, I know going into this game, there was a lot of talk of do the Chiefs need to find another wide receiver to round out that room. I think going into this, the answer is yes. I think leaving this game, the answer still might be yes in the grand scheme. I think... The one thing that will be the downfall of this team, and I I still think this is, somewhere in the playoffs, there's going to be a game where a team is going to be able to contain Kelsey, or maybe Kelsey's banged up, you know, when he's playing at 75%, but they'll be able to contain Kelsey, and there won't be a reliable second option to feed, and I think it's just going to be frustration, frustration, frustration. But for now, that was not the story of this game. Patrick Mahomes had receptions from 10 different wide receivers, which is a breath of fresh air. And let's just go through some stats here really quick. So Mahomes had a wonderful game. He was 32 for 42, 424 yards, four touchdowns, one interception. Easily his best passing game of the season. That was a vintage Mahomes nuclear game. I love to see it. The one interception, not my favorite thing in the world. He tried forcing a deep pass on a third and long, which you know was essentially an arm punt. Uh, I have not seen the all-22 footage yet, but I am told that Marquez Valdez-Scantling was wide open on the other side of the field and would have had another easy touchdown. But I don't know. Maybe if MVS was more reliable and actually had receptions, Mahomes would look his way on stuff like that a little bit more. But what do I know? I'm just armchair quarterback in all this. Uh But no, Mahomes looked good. Even in the second half when the Chargers defense stepped up, Mahomes never really looked stymied and frustrated. He was consistently moving the ball. He looked comfortable. He had time. He didn't feel like he was forcing anything outside of that aforementioned interception. So I have to say it was a great game from Patrick. Now coming into this game, and I think I mentioned this last week after the Broncos game, the one big thing we have on the San Diego Chargers that always seems to be the thorn in their side. They got Mike Williams. 
Mike Williams is great, but he's not playing. The difference maker in a lot of these contests of the Patrick Mahomes era has always been Travis Kelsey stepping up and just having a beastly, unstoppable game against the Chargers. And guess what? That's exactly what Kelsey did this week against the Chargers. 12 receptions, 179 yards, and one touchdown. This was a breath of fresh air as Kelsey's had some pretty solid games this year, but I think at this point we've had the question of, is he going to get to that 1,000-yard precipice again this year for the eighth straight season? And I would say after this game, and thanks to this game, I think that's still a possibility. I really do. I think this is still a possibility. Uh, Kelsey is now, let's see, he is just over 500 yards for the season, meaning he's got to get 475 over the next uh, nine contests in order to get that 1,000-yard mark. I think he can do it. I think he can do it, but it won't be easy. I think he has to have one more very solid game, like another... 120-so yard game like he had against the Broncos a couple weeks ago. But I think it's doable. I think also, we've been talking about this a lot on the podcast, and that is Father Time finally catching up with Travis Kelsey? You know, the the guy obviously isn't getting any younger. So, you know, we have to give him that. He is getting older. But I'm starting to wonder if at the beginning of the year, Kelsey just wasn't banged up. Because you remember he had that knee injury like the week before we started the season and ultimately that was greatly felt in the Lions game. But now that kind of like week by week, I think he's getting past that injury and knocking on wood and nothing else serious has affected him. I think that's been the big thing. And now we're kind of seeing a close to healthy 33-year-old Travis Kelsey, which is exactly what this offense needs. Now going forward, I still think we need to put the rush order on finding the Kelsey replacement, who I do not believe is on this team at this point in time. We'll get to that here in a little bit. But if we can build Kelsey for one more season and make an aggressive play this offseason to bring in a replacement, be it Mike Evans, be it someone in the draft, be it trading all of our picks for the next 10 years to move up and get Marvin Harrison Jr., I still think we need to expedite that process. Now, looking across the receiving room, I do have to say this was a big step-up game for our team, particularly with the absence of who's been our most consistent receiver throughout the year and Justin Watson sitting out for the next few weeks with I think it was a dislocated wrist, didn't he have, or a sprained wrist in that Broncos game late? Regardless, looking across the board, the wide receiver with the biggest game for us was Marquez Valdez-Scantling. Three receptions, 84 yards, and one long touchdown. I feel like I'm dunking on MVS already saying this. For being a guy who supposedly runs like right at a 4-3, dude, he is the slowest 4-3 I've ever seen in my life. He was just like clunking his way to the end zone. But he did it, and it was on another improvised play. The biggest thing was he found space on that touchdown. He didn't quit on his route, which seems to be just the Achilles heel of a lot of these wide receivers in this room. He didn't quit on his route. He knew Pat was going to improvise. He improvised with Pat. He got himself open for Pat. And subsequently, he was able to use that blazing 4.3 speed to get into the end zone. It was great. It was a great day by MVS. And this is what we need to see more of from him. 
The big question is, a lot of people have said that Andy is running MVS a lot as a distraction on a lot of plays, trying to stretch the field, grab the second safety when teams are playing too high on us. I'm curious on this. I feel like there have been times we've needed receivers to step up and MVS has not stepped up. However, in games where we have some attrition in our wide receiver room, be it the Bengals game in the playoffs last year, be it this year, this week, when our wide receivers have not been stepping up, Marquez Valdez-Scantling stepped up. Now, I'm not sure if that's just like Andy calling him more to be less of a distraction type of player and more of a doer. I don't know. But games like this shows the frustrating upside of what MVS can do for this wide receiver room. We just don't consistently see it. I would be so over the moon if MVS was a three-reception, 84-yard receiver for the rest of the season, but we'll just have to wait and see. Now, I know I said MVS was the premier receiver in this game, but I would be absolutely dishonest if I didn't say the wide receiver with the biggest impact and possibly the biggest coming out party was this year's second-round wide receiver, Rashi Rice. Rasheed Rice had himself a day with five receptions, 60 yards, and a touchdown. And not a gadget play touchdown, not a little pooch pass, not a little end around, not a quick slant, a touchdown pass where he found space in the back of the end zone and subsequently Patrick found him in the back of the end zone. I didn't see a lot of drops this week, which has been a big Achilles heel of his recently, but Rasheed Rice, he was there picking up yak, dude. He's just... He's got a certain acceleration to him, which is so funny because you didn't see it in his draft footage or in his combine numbers. But like the minute he gets the ball, I think the biggest thing with him is that he doesn't dance around with it. Like how many times have we seen Denard step back Robinson? I think MVS did it a few times this year amongst other people where they catch the ball and they do that big step back to try and get a yard of separation and then turn the corner on the guy. But when Rasheed gets the ball, he turns up field and he's just like, nah, and he just starts plowing forward, instant acceleration. And that's exactly what this team needs right now is someone who can catch the ball definitively and move the chains. I'd be thrilled if Rice is that guy. I really would. And I'm going to keep saying this to the end until I'm out of breath, until I'm blue in the face here. I know Armando likes to clown me and he's like, ah, you didn't like Rasheed Rice, we drafted him. I didn't like Rasheed Rice when we drafted him because I was told we were getting a big field-stretching deep threat of a receiver, and Rasheed Rice did not seem to be that guy. I still don't think Rasheed Rice is that guy. I think Rasheed Rice could be Brandon Ayuk, Debo Samuel, somewhere in between the two of those guys. I think he's going to be a yak monster. I agree with a lot of people that say he kind of his play kind of reminds me of Sammy Watkins in, in terms of being able to find soft spot and then immediately turn it up field and run. And I also do think Rasheed Rice is going to be an important wide receiver in this room for years to come. So, good job for our guy, Rasheed Rice. Other contributors in the passing game, Isaiah Pacheco, he had a bit of a quiet game running. We weren't able to get the ball on the ground against uh, the Chargers this week, which was a little surprising considering their run defense is suspect. But where he fell short in the running game, he had a pretty solid game in the passing game. Four receptions for 28 yards and another touchdown, including the game sealer in the fourth quarter. So I think we're finally using Isaiah Pacheco a little bit more, kind of like that Tony Pollard style they got over in Dallas, where it's like, all right, we're going to try and stretch the field here. We're going to run to the outside, turn the corner. We're going to use you in quick dump off situations where you can just kind of turn the ball and run. I like what I'm seeing from Isaiah Pacheco. I still think he's running back one. 
I really wish we had a change of pace back on third down just to give Isaiah a bit of a spell, a bit of a breather, and a chance to compose himself. That being said, Sky Moore, two receptions for 15 yards. I think Sky Moore had himself a decent game. I'm still wanting to see much more from this guy, but he threw some critical blocks. He found some open space. And heck, he wasn't completely silent this game. So, baby steps, guy. Baby steps. Other than that, had a lot of uh, one-reception wide receivers. But I think I must also mention the big acquisition, and I say big, of Nicole Hardman. The return of the prodigal son to Kansas City. Now, I know during his tenure here, or his first tenure here, A lot of Chiefs fans always gave them the narrative, oh, we could have gotten, who was it, Terry McLaurin, or we could have gotten DK Metcalf instead of of McCole Hardman. You've heard this song and dance a million times. We figured out what McCole Hardman was. He did not wind up being the next coming of Tyreek Hill, but he wound up being a terrific gadget player, someone who could stretch the field, and someone who had to keep defenses honest, because although not the quickest guy, he could quickly turn something from nothing into something. And that's exactly what we saw in this game against the Chargers. Late in the fourth quarter, McCole Hardman Jr. returns a massive 50-yard punt return to set us up for our game-winning touchdown, or I should say game-sealing touchdown. He also, on that drive, had a huge third-down conversion, not in a jet sweep, not in a shuffle pass, not in a broken play, but he ran a route, found the first-down marker, caught the ball, which, as I said, he does not have good hands, and he went down and got us that first down. This felt a lot like Kadarius Tony in the Super Bowl, where it's like, yeah, he wasn't the biggest factor throughout the game, but if he wasn't here for his explosive playmaking, this game is a lot, lot, lot tighter down the stretch. Now, the question is, is McCole Hardman's playmaking ability the secret ingredient, the chemical X that the offense has been missing all season? I think it's close. I still think we need another reliable pass catcher on this offense. But that being said, I think McCole Hardman Jr.'s spark, big playability, kept the Chargers defense honest and other teams had to be a little worried about if slash when he was going to break one. I think that's been a component in this Patrick Mahomes era Andy Reid offense since he's been here. And I will say this year is probably the first year that he hasn't had that in any way, shape or form. I think last year, uh, you could argue, but McColl was healthy for the first half of the year, and he had Juju Smith-Schuster there on third downs to kind of bail him out. We didn't necessarily need that big playability as much. But this year, when they keep playing the carousel with the wide receiver room, it's nice to have somebody that can keep defenses wondering and just keeping one eye open saying, what's that guy going to do? Are they going to dial up something for him? Another big thing to consider with uh, McCole Hardman being back is going to be our red zone offense. You can go back and check out the, the game against the 49ers last year. They had no answer for the red zone package we had with McCole Hardman in the backfield. I think we just, I think he had three, maybe four touchdowns that game. We just ate that number one defense for lunch last year. And having that guy in the backfield again is great. Kadarius Toney, I'd love for him to be that guy, but I don't think he has the durability, and he doesn't have the speed. Kadarius Toney's incredibly quick, but deceptively slow. 
But McCole Hardman Jr., if we can get those jet sweeps, if we can get those exotic packages in the red zone back on the field, I would love to see this offense have more games like it had today. 31 points, 24 in the first half, looking like a well-oiled machine. Hats off to the Chiefs offense in this game. Now the other side of the field, our defense. Coming into this Chargers game, the talk's been, wow, this is the best defense Patrick Mahomes has had. This is a top five unit. You know, what's making them look so outstanding? You know, they got players playing like all decade type players right now, like Legereus Sneed. I've been saying pump the brakes a little bit. I'm not going to say this isn't the best defense Patrick Mahomes has had since coming to Kansas City because it absolutely 100% is. But all the talks that this is, you know, some terrific lockdown defense. I've kind of been taking that with a grain of salt. Admittedly, we haven't played a whole lot of high-powered offenses this season. I think, you know, Lions offense, yeah, it's play action, it's hot or cold, but shut them down and they haven't looked great throughout this year. Vikings, Vikings have a very good offense, kind of shut them down for the most part. Jacksonville, Jacksonville's a solid team all around. I wouldn't say Jacksonville has a great offense by any stretch. So I would say the Chargers are probably the most loaded and dangerous offense we've played all year, certainly with the most dangerous quarterback who can do anything on third and long. So coming into this game, it was kind of a let's see what happens sort of thing. And I'll be honest, in the first half, I was not filled with confidence. The Chargers blew us up for a couple big plays that went for touchdowns, including a basic counter handoff. There was a passing play deep. I think it was a curl route or something. They turned around and turned into a touchdown. They were moving the ball up and down the field on us. And I was just like, well, maybe our defense isn't quite as great as it's been. Or it could have been the fact that Staley was coaching for his life. At the very least, coaching for the season. The Chargers didn't throw anything crazy at us. They didn't throw any trick plays or exotic packages or other weird things our way. They were just moving the ball. They were just tearing us up. And it wasn't unlike what we seem to do to other teams when we get rolling. So I will admit I was a little concerned on that. These Chargers games are always high scoring. They're always close. And I'm like, well, okay, the Chargers love playing our defense. And maybe this is just going to be another one of those games. That being said, the second half, five possessions. We had three three and outs. We had two punt returns. We had. Two interceptions. Baby. They pitched a shutout in the second half against the team that was flying in the first half. I'm glad to see all those adjustments being made in the second half and seeing our defense just lock down this team. Dead serious. It looked great. They locked them down. In the first half, McDuffie probably played one of his worst first halves of the season, but it was nice to see him step back up and get back into the swing of things. I mentioned, you know, there was no Mike Williams this this week. So I'm like, okay, good. We don't have the Chiefs killer against us. But I was a little worried because there was one time in the, I think it was the first half, Quentin Johnson had like a reception for 20 yards. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, is, is this just going to be the new Chiefs killer guy? This six three rookies is going to go up and posterize us and all these deep balls on third down. But it was not to be. He continues his frustrating rookie campaign. Joshua Palmer, five receptions, 133 yards. I think we'll give Joshua Palmer all the yards he wants, so long as Keenan Allen is kept at four receptions and 55 yards. And that's where another big shout-out's going to have to come is Legereus Sneed. We missed him 
early on when he was recovering from his injuries. We felt his loss last year when he had to sit out for a period of time. But this season, the versatility of that guy seriously has him playing at the level of someone that, I mean, if he can sustain it, you know, this could be an all-decade type of player. You see it in his just adaptability. You know, we're putting him as our shutdown corner on a lot of the number one targets of these teams, you know, this year. And he's had to play some really good receivers. They put him on Calvin Ridley. They've put him on Justin Jefferson. They've put him on Keenan Allen. Uh, You know, a lot of these guys are serious wide receivers. And you know what he's done? He's posted terrific QBR numbers. He's posted terrific passes defense numbers. He's playing really well. It's the fact that we can play him as a lockdown corner, but he also has the size, speed, and athleticism to be moved into the safety position and sometimes even into like a hybrid linebacker type role, which I think we'll need to see more of going forward with Nick Bolton being out and probably until the playoffs. So right now, the thunder and lightning we have in our cornerback room between Legereus Sneed and our boy Trent McDuffie is super impressive. And I think that is kind of where this defense starts and ends so far this year. The corners in the secondary being able to lock up the receivers is giving our kind of patchwork in development defensive line more time to get to the quarterback as opposed to the reverse, which has been in the past. Spags is like, okay, D-line, I need you guys to get to the quarterback ASAP because I don't know how long Charvarius Ward and Bashad Breeland can hold dudes off in the backfield without holding them, literally. So it's nice kind of seeing the script being flipped on this time and seeing this secondary really gel and really be one of the high points of this defense. Speaking of the defensive line, I think it's only fair to welcome back our boy, Charles Amenehu. Charles Amenehu made himself feel felt, feel felt, be felt immediately entering his first game back from suspension. Uh, You know, while he did not post incredibly gaudy numbers this game, I believe he had uh, two tackles. I don't think he had any sacks. Oh, no, he had one sack. I lied. But he was integral in creating pressure on the quarterback and only complimented the fact that this year Chris Jones is being allowed to call his own lineup shots. He's saying, okay, where's the weakest guy in the D-line? I'm going to line up opposite to him. So sometimes if that means that we need to move Amenehu to the inside because Chris Jones is going to play defensive end, we can do that. Amenehu also came out and played notably angry. It's like he had a bone to pick. Usually when players come back from since on the IR or like multi-game suspensions like this, they can seem a little slow for a game or two or need to get back up to game speed. Uh-uh. Amenehu was out there and he was going all John Wick on everybody and it was it was terrific. Now, because Armando's not with me this week, I got to share this take. This is an original Armando take. One thing I saw on this defense, because Armando brought it up, one thing I saw on this defense is just the absolute luxury and the best feeling in the world on defense, which is being able to get pressure on the quarterback by rushing four. We all know this has been Spag's calling card since he came to Kansas City. These crazy blitz packages, these sending the extra man, this cover one, cover zero, cornerback blitz, all that stuff. But in the past, especially on third and long, it's wound up putting dudes on islands and getting guys blown up deep into coverage. By being able to rush four, we can run a more basic cover defense 
in the in the linebacking core and the secondary that's not going to require sending extra dudes and playing the numbers game trying to get to the quarterback before he finds the wide open dude. And I have to say, I've noticed this the last few years when I'm watching teams that have, you know, good defenses. And it's just like, man, it's like, how do they get pressure with four? That that must just feel so good beating your assignment so consistently and getting pressure on the quarterback and then having to find an open guy who's just not going to be there. That's got to be quite the feeling. So the fact that Armando pointed that out to me that he's like, hey, guess what? We can get pressure sending four. Oh, baby. And the thing is, it's the same thing with this defensive line now that I was saying about our secondary last week. We're in the past. I would say prior to Amenahue, it's kind of like our defensive line is playing well versus our defensive line has good players. When you line up that front four, and we're going to go across right now, you got George Karloftis, Chris Jones, Charles Amenahue, and either Mike Dana, who's having a career year at defensive end, or rookie Felix Anadike Uzama, who's no slouch, that's a pretty solid front four. I'm not going to pretend like this is the 85 Bears or anything like that. You know, this isn't the 2000 Ravens, but that's a solid front four. Outside of maybe Mike Dana slash FAU, who are, I would say, probably the softer spots in that front four. Dude, Karloft is taking a step forward this year. Chris Jones is continuing his rampage incentive comeback road trip 2023. And Charles Amenehu who looks to be a very strong addition to this line. I'm liking this. I'm liking this. Now the question is, can they maintain this going down the year? I think it'll be interesting. I think we have a little bit of depth now because now we can rotate guys in who are still strong. We're not rotating in a bunch of like six, seventh round nobody picks just to get a few reps in there and then get cooked. I kind of like it. Kind of like it a lot. Other things we got going on. I got to give a shout out to our linebacker core this year again. It's fantastic to have some depth at that position. In years past, if Willie Gay goes down for a game or two, or if Nick Bolton's down for a game or two, you're putting in some dudes like, oh my gosh, I can see his face and I can't even remember his name, which talks about the depth we had at linebacker. You're putting Ben Neiman in. You know, speaking of Ben Neiman, I can't remember if I mentioned this in the podcast before, but one of the best takes I've seen recently about the play of Drew Tranquil, the offseason cast-off from the San Diego Chargers, one of the best takes I've seen is that Drew Tranquil is what Spags wanted Ben Neiman to be. And he absolutely is. He's bigger. He's faster. He's stronger. He's a beast in coverage. But he can also send him on blitzes. And he's a far better tackler. I'm dead serious. You go out there. Take a gander. Take a gander and watch Drew Tranquil play. And be like, oh my gosh. That is exactly the roles and the positions and the spots that Ben Neiman played. But he didn't have the NFL ability to do so. I think that's huge. That does not exonerate Spags for playing Ben Neiman and putting him in those positions for all those years. But I can see it now that he has the personnel he wants. Willie Gay Jr., also on a contract prove-it season, is having a very strong year. He's finally looking like he's able to play comfortably and just go out and exist. He's not having to overthink everything and being a step you know, behind and then having to catch up with his athleticism. Dude, we've seen him bat so many passes this year, including one that was batted the line of scrimmage and intercepted for a huge, huge momentum swing. He also is doing much better in coverage. 
and he's doing better at getting to the quarterback. Willie Gay in this game, five tackles, three solo tackles, a sack, a tackle for a loss, a pass defended, a QB hit. I mean, dude, he's lighting up the stat line. That's like the, the, the NBA equivalent of like a septuple single. I don't even know if that's a thing. Are there, are there seven stats in the NBA? Yeah, we'll get Armando on. We'll ask him about that. But more importantly, the fact that Nick Bolton, unfortunately, is going to be out for an extended period of time, probably close right up until the playoffs now. I don't have as much worry because we have Drew Tranquil, Willie Gay Jr., and Leo Chennault, who is also finding his role in this defense, and they're finding good ways to put him to use, particularly in stuffing the run and getting to the quarterback. We got some decent linebackers here. Again, I'm not going to tout that, you know, I'm not going to be the, the guy who's saying, like, oh, we got Matt Milano. He's one of the best linebackers. Like, nah, he's one of the best linebackers in Buffalo. He's not a great linebacker. But we got some dogs. We got some dogs. I love it. I really do. So one last thing I want to talk about this week against the Chargers is uh, it almost feel like a, felt like a bit of a passing of the torch. As I've mentioned before, all of these games of the Chargers always seem to come down to the final play. Like even going back to like the Philip Rivers days, even going back to the Alex Smith days, these Chargers games always come down to the final play or the final drive or the defense needing to get some sort of crazy turnover or the offense needing to put up seven points with like 25 seconds left. That's when the Chargers M.O. And ultimately, this game kind of felt like it might go that way. You know, going late into the fourth quarter, it's only 24 to 17. You know, a touchdown lead against these guys means nothing. But there was something going on in the defense that we were able to stymie the Chargers offense so much, while our offense, while not producing points, was still fairly consistently moving the ball. That 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 touchdown that Pacheco put up late in in the fourth quarter felt really good. And was really nice, but you know, it didn't feel like if it weren't for that, we were going to lose that game. That just kind of felt like, I don't know, closing the book, even with two and a half minutes left. So, this has led me to believe this is even prior to Patrick Mahomes arriving, the Chargers have perennially been crowned the offseason champions. You know, that's, that's the joke around Kansas City, is that the Chargers are always the offseason champions. They're the sexy dark horse to come in and dethrone the Chiefs in the AFC West. They got a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. You know, a stud quarterback between Phillip Rivers and Justin Herbert. So, yeah, this, this is a Super Bowl team. If they finally figure it out, if they finally stop getting blown out in the playoffs, this, this could be the champion team. And admittedly, since Mahomes has been here, they absolutely have been the second best team in the division and the biggest thorn in the Chiefs' side. But... Coming into this game, this was the first one that I said felt very comfortable in the second half and locked up that didn't come down to a final play. So you pair this together with the fact that the Chargers kind of went all in last year in terms of selling draft picks, in terms of signing big money, aging veteran players like Khalil Mack. My question that's starting to swirl in my head is, barring getting rid of Staley and just like knocking it out of the park on the next head coaching hire, is this kind of the end of the Chargers being the Chiefs boogeyman for potentially the foreseeable future? Now, they still have a lot of great players in that team. Like, don't get me wrong, but let's look at it this way. Justin Herbert, his contract is about to kick in. 
they've had the last four years to put this team together to make a serious run with him being on his rookie contract. That's not going to be the case next year. And this is just this is going to get harder from here on out to sign great players. They're going to have to start drafting some studs, which if the Quinton Johnson thing is any sign this year, that's not happening. Looking across the offense, this could also be the final year of Mike Williams. Mike Williams is going to be looking for a big money deal, not to mention he tore his ACL this year. So he's not going to be playing for the rest of the year. He might not be a Charger anymore after this year. Keenan Allen. Keenan Allen is having a career year right now up until when he played us. But we've joked in this podcast that he's been like 35 for the last few years. Well, he's 32 after this season. So again, this is another veteran player who's not getting any younger. Austin Eckler, he might also be gone off this team here pretty soon. He's not happy with his contract numbers. Joshua Kelly looks like he might have something to show. But other than that, there goes a lot of the offense. Khalil Mack on defense, he's only getting older. Derwin James, again, solid player. He's only getting older. Bosa, Bosa's a fantastic player, but he can't seem to get healthy. And for whatever reason, it seems that this year those injuries are starting to stack up. He might be a step slower than he used to be. He's a very physical type player. So, all this leads me to wonder, are they, they're not going into rebuild mode anytime soon, I don't think. But is this team on the wane? Have we seen the best of the Chargers so far until they put out a new version of this team with a new head coach, an older Justin Herbert, and a largely new roster? I think it's something to think about. So going into this next week against the Denver Broncos, I do hate that we have to play a team twice in three weeks. I have been this on the podcast multiple times. You've seen those Amazon commercials being like, the NFL schedule used to take months to make, but now we can run a trillion schedules and pick the best one in under five minutes. Well, I mean, I can kind of tell with all these times that a number of teams are like, all right, for example, this year, Colts, yeah, you're playing, uh, you're going to be done playing Jacksonville for the season after week five. Doesn't matter if one of your teams gets better or the other team gets worse over the span of the season. You're just going to play each other twice in the first five weeks. Okay, cool, fine. You're seeing it with other teams and other divisions, and you're seeing it with the Chiefs, with the Broncos this year. I I don't know how they're doing these schedules. I, I think there should be some sort of filter stipulation to be like, for teams you're playing twice, you have to have like a minimum of a five or six week gap between playing them again, at minimum. Or like, you have half your division games before week eight and half your division games after week nine. If you have this incredible AI season season schedule creator simulator that you guys tout to have. I'm sure this isn't difficult for you to do. If not, go put Joey Pencil Pusher back and have him manually put the schedule together using an abacus. I don't care. It used to be better than it is now. While you're at it, get all these New York teams out of primetime games. Oh my gosh, it's been terrible this season. The Jets, well, I'll give them an exoneration for having Rodgers out. The Giants having four, pre- or four primetime games in the first five weeks. Are you kidding me? Nobody wanted to see that, even before we knew they were going to be garbage. Fix your scheduling problem, NFL. But going into the Broncos this week, uh, this could very well be the first snow game of the season. There's a 90% chance of snow predicted in Denver. Uh, it's going to be interesting. Armando and I, were, you know, we, we debated last week, was this just the Broncos showing out, the Chiefs struggling to score, or Andy Reid not wanting to show them anything? I suppose we're probably going to find out when we play each other this next week. 
Uh, currently, matchup predictor has Chiefs at an 82.5% chance of winning. I think it's a little high, honestly, considering these are division games. And Russell Wilson has been playing like moderately better than he did last year. He's not a complete dumpster fire like he was. He's got 1,500 yards, 13 touchdowns, 4 INTs. But you got to remember, the Broncos haven't played anybody at all up to this point. Uh, their only win is against the Bears, in which they should have lost. Oh, I forgot they beat the Packers last week, but only scored 19 points doing it. Chiefs can't be caught sleeping on this one. This is going to be a potential trap game with the Munich game against the Dolphins looming large and for first place in the AFC the following week. So what they have to do against the Broncos is just go in there, execute, and get the job done. Get the job done. It's on record saying Patrick Mahomes is kind of weird and psychotic and enjoys playing snow games, which is totally fine so long as he continues to spin the ball like a champ and can stay upright and not injured. But... You know, it's it's hard. And especially since the Chiefs game last week, there is talk that Denver is officially in fire sale mode. Like, all players are up for grabs. Cortland Sutton, Jerry Judy, uh, who else am I forgetting? Patrick Sertan, Josie Jewell. All those guys are potentially on the trade block. And that does something to the chemistry of your locker room when it's kind of like, hey guys, any one of us could die here in the next you know few weeks. This could be the last... The last games we play together. And that doesn't cause them to rally the troops. I mean, not when you're sitting two and five and three, four games back in the division already before the halfway point. It's like they're not going to rally and, you know, fight for the blue and orange just because it could be their last games together. So I'd like to believe that plays in the Chiefs' favor as well. I would like to believe Corton Sutton lands on the Chiefs at some point, but we don't always get what we want here. Uh, I'm going to predict another low-scoring affair. I'd like to say Chiefs win this one uh, 23-15. I'm not sure how you score 15 or the best way to score 15, but 23-15 is my prediction for this Chiefs game against the Broncos. Anyway, that's all I've got to point out this week. Thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Hot Take Mind will be back in the booth next week with me. He's super busy running another show because that dude is, you can call him Curly Boo because he's a Harlem Globetrotter baby. He's everywhere right now. Uh, he's got gigs up the wazoo, singing from here to Mizu. La? I don't know. I'll work on my bars. We'll see. Anyway, take care, everybody, and uh, go Chiefs! I'd like to thank you for joining us today on Fountain City Sports Media. This podcast is brought to you by listener support, so consider becoming a friend of the podcast. Check out our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash FCSM to gain access to premium content including outtakes, bonus episodes, and exclusive beer reviews. Check out our website at fountaincitysportsmedia.com for more info on the podcast, social media, and of course, the goings-on in the beer industry. Special thanks to bands Carswell and Hope and Like a Tiger for providing our intro and outro themes. And as always, I'm Reese, and alongside my good friend Armando, we thank you for tuning in to Fountain City Sports Media. Fountain City Sports Media.